Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to begin our time this morning by just diving right into the text and reading Paul's opening words in this chapter. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. It's an interesting little section of scripture, a sort of interlude of love that's wedged in between a uh, discussion of, of idolatry. You can see that pretty clearly in verse 1, he begins with that familiar phrase, now concerning indicating that this is another one of the questions that they have written to Paul about in their letters. Now concerning food offered to idols, and then you'll see again in verse 4, he picks that up again. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. And in between, he puts this little section about love. It's One of the more memorable sections of the Bible, one of the more well-known And not really because it has anything to do with eating food offered to idols. I'm I'm going to just assume this morning that's not not high on your list of uh, threatening sins. It's not high on your confession list that you have gone and taken before the Lord that you've eaten some meal that was offered before an idol. It has really a long, a, a sort of remote cultural context for us, but as we'll see in the coming weeks, it has very near and very important principles for us, as Paul will unfold in this chapter and the next and the next, an extended discussion related to a particular issue for these believers, an issue related to their eating this food offered to idols. Really, What it really becomes for us is instruction in areas of life where there is no black and white, clear, explicit statement on right and wrong. It becomes for us a a description of God's will in the gray matters. And that's what he will unfold, that's what we will unfold in the coming weeks. But before we do that, we're sort of bound, I think we're forced to kind of deal with this little interlude. And we're forced to deal with it for a number of reasons. For, for first of all, it is, as we'll see in the coming weeks, it's the foundation. It is the launching pad and it is the thing which undergirds everything Paul will say, not just here and not just even in the next three chapters, but going all the way to chapter 14. Paul may not mention the word love again until you get to chapter 13, but we will all recognize that he explodes with an anthem of love there. It is probably one of the most well-recognized passages on love anywhere ever written in human language. But all the way from here, all the way through 13 and into 14, this really is the idea that undergirds everything. This is the foundation. This is the, this is the guiding principle of everything he will say. And so we're bound, really, to... To, to stop here, to pause here, and to understand exactly what he is saying to us about love and even about knowledge. Because if love is sort of the guiding principle, knowledge is the backdrop. 
And this becomes, unfortunately, for too many people, their sort of motto and their sort of theme, uh, their rallying cry against knowledge. I think it's safe to say that truth and knowledge is not in vogue right now. People resent or uh, people resist the idea of anything that comes across as certain, anything that comes across as uh, having conviction, anything that would make a claim to truth, anything that sounds definitive, authoritative, absolute in any way, people have a, an aversion to that, not just in the world, but there's even within Christianity a pushback against knowledge and against doctrine and against teaching. People no longer want a preacher, they want a presenter. People no longer want a teacher, they want a facilitator. And they want to resist all of those things because somehow they've gotten it in their heads that knowledge is dangerous, that doctrine is bad, that somehow it's a threat that ought to be avoided if at all possible. And many of them base their ideas of that on Paul's very words here. But to do that, as we'll see, is not only a misunderstanding of what Paul's saying in this verse, and he will make it very clear in verses 2 and 3. It's a misunderstanding of Paul altogether. Paul understood as well as anyone that if you are going to progress in your spiritual life, if you're going to have any kind of blessing and growth and maturity, if you're going to find any more fellowship with God and any more stability in your spiritual life, it will not happen apart from a growth in knowledge. And so, consequently, Paul was always pushing knowledge on one hand or praying for people that he's ministering to to have knowledge on the other. For example, he prays for the Ephesian believers. He prays, he says, consistently or constantly. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. He says to the Colossians, we don't cease to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, the Apostle Paul understood that sanctification and growth are tied to knowledge. He understood what the Apostle Peter makes abundantly clear in 2 Peter 1, that God has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. That's what it says. So that if you're going to have any kind of blessing, any kind of growth in life and in godliness, it's going to have to come by knowledge. And that would come to a shock as a shock to a lot of people who've tried to reduce Christianity as something over against knowledge. They've reduced Christianity maybe to the idea of just blind faith. And you will have, especially if you turn on your TV, occasionally you will see preachers telling their people, you need to stop thinking and just start believing. As if somehow thinking is contrary to faith. Or you'll have sometimes people who would want to reduce Christianity to nothing more than an emotional experience, a feeling, and they go around and their whole discussion about Christianity is, I 
feel like God does this, or I feel like God does that, or I feel this, or I feel that. They've reduced it down to an emotional experience, an ethereal experience, but not anything that in any way is cognitive or, or related to knowledge or truth. Or more common, perhaps, is the attempt to reduce Christianity down to a little more than just love. And these people would take as their theme verse what Paul says in verse 1 of this chapter. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That's a misunderstanding, as I said, of what Paul says here. It's a misunderstanding of love. You see, Paul himself understood that love, genuine, true love, is a byproduct of knowledge. It is not opposed to knowledge. And so you hear him saying it over and over again. For example, for the Philippians, he prays. He said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. In other words, Paul understood that if their love was going to abound, it would not abound apart from knowledge and apart from understanding. You have people that don't want to invest in knowledge. You have people that don't want to invest in understanding. They don't want to invest the time to learn something, to grow in their doctrine, to grow in their knowledge. And yet they wonder why God is not doing something in their marriage, in their home, in their relationship to other people. They wonder why God isn't doing something generating the kind of love that's supposed to be there because it doesn't come. It doesn't come apart from truth. It is the byproduct of the depth of your understanding. Or if you have your Bibles, look with me for a moment at 1 Timothy chapter 1 because it is a very important verse, I think, in this whole paradigm, maybe more explicit than anywhere else that Paul says it. 1 Timothy 1 in verse 5 Paul says this, the aim of our instruction, or it's translated command, or in some places it's translated charge. The aim of our command, the aim of our instruction is what? Love. He says, look, at the end of the day, this is what it is aiming at. This is what it's all about. The aim of everything that we teach, the aim of what we're commanded to teach is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now you might be thinking, well, surely that's, maybe that's taken out of context. Maybe that's overstated a little bit. No, it's not. Because all Paul is really doing here is restating what the Lord Jesus Christ had already said. He already said it. He said it in one simplified form. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. You want to know what the commandment is? You want to know what the aim of the commandment is that he gave us? Love one another. Or maybe more comprehensively, this is the single word summary, Jesus said, of the Old Testament. Every precept, every commandment, every doctrine, 
Every covenant, every story, he says, is summarized in two principles. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The aim, the goal, the the end point of everything you'll ever study from the Old Testament is summarized in those two things. So Paul is certainly not exaggerating here. He's certainly not taking anything out of context. He is summarizing what ought to be really innately understood by every one of us. That every doctrine that's taught, every, every knowledge that you gain, all the study that you ever do, ought to have as its end goal the production of love. This is what it's all about. So people want to come along and say, well, Love is opposed to knowledge, or knowledge is opposed to love, or we need to put aside knowledge and set aside doctrine and get away, uh, get away from all that stuff and just start loving one another. Those are people who are demonstrating by their words either a superficial or an intentionally erroneous understanding of what Scripture says. That isn't at all the, the pathway to love. If anything, that's the pathway Chaos, confusion, and the animosity that comes with it. Paul's writing to these Corinthians, and they were sort of in the midst of something like that. They had some division. There were two groups that had formed in the church, at least, back over in 1 Corinthians 8. Two groups that were dividing over an issue of Food, which was sacrificed to idols. Actually, as we'll see in the coming weeks, more specifically, what they were really struggling over is the participation in social events at the dining halls of pagan temples. Places where they were served up festivals and meals, which included meat, which had been sacrificed to idols. This, and this was causing a division among them. This was causing confusion among them. And some of them had written to the Apostle Paul asking for his input, probably wanting to get him on their team. And apparently, one of their statements to him, one of their mottos or one of their defenses was this. And he says it in 1 Corinthians 8 in verse 1. We all have Knowledge. We all possess knowledge. Your Bibles may put that in parentheses, indicating that this is, this is one of their statements. In fact, this is a major theme throughout the book of Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians alone, you have in those two books, the word knowledge, the word Greek word gnosis, used more times in those two books than the entire rest of the New Testament combined. So if Paul is trying to drive home the fact that love is the aim, we can at least say in equal measure that knowledge is the context. That everything he wants to say here is said against the backdrop of a people who valued knowledge, who aspired to knowledge, who sought out knowledge, and who had knowledge. And this wasn't erroneous knowledge, as we'll see going on in the verses 4 through 7 particularly, and even through the rest of the chapter. This isn't erroneous knowledge. This is true knowledge. They knew things that were true. They knew things that were right. They knew things that 
Paul would affirm, things which we would affirm, things which are knowledgeable and true and right, and yet still Paul has to confront them. Because although they knew something, although they had knowledge, they didn't understand the true nature of knowledge. They didn't understand the way that the Scripture would have you understand all of these doctrines, all of these truths, all of these facts and covenants and commandments that they had been taught. So Paul has to take, before he gets into this grander issue of understanding God's will in the gray matters, Paul has to first take this interlude and explain to them the nature of true knowledge. Now he's going to do it with a number of principles or warnings for us. Three of them that I want to highlight to you this morning. The first one comes to us in verse 1. And that's simply the pretension of knowledge. The pretension. That is to say people misuse knowledge all the time. This is really what he's getting at when he says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. I mean, this is a a message that is not just here and not even just in the New Testament, but it's found even in the Old Testament. We read about repeatedly, for example, in Proverbs, the fool who is wise in his own eyes. It says it in Proverbs 12, 15, a fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 26, do you see the man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than him. Or in another place, it says a fool does not delight in understanding, but in revealing his own mind. That is to say, this is the mark of a fool. They want to go around all the time trying to draw attention to what they know. They're always trying to reveal what's in their head, reveal what's in their mind. They're always trying to glory in their own thoughts, in their own wisdom. So it shouldn't be a shock to us, either from biblical principle or from personal experience. We've all unfortunately seen it. The danger, of course, isn't just your run-of-the-mill, average, everyday fool. It's that these people are drawing attention to themselves with religious knowledge, with knowledge of the Bible, with doctrines, with theology. And this is what Paul wants to confront most vigorously. Because he understood the danger of this. In fact, if turn back with me to 1 Timothy, because we saw where Paul gave that very clear statement of what knowledge and doctrine aims at. It aims at producing sincere, unhypocritical, godly love. But the reality is that a number of people can take the very same doctrines and use them, as Paul will say in verse 8, unlawfully. Not the way they're supposed to be used. He says in verse 6, certain persons swerving away from these, and the these refers back to verse 5, that is the sincere faith and and, uh, unhypocritical love, all the things that mark what Paul's a good conscience, all the things that that Paul says he aims at, he says certain people swerve away from these and wander into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, 
without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So he's saying there are people who stand up and they make confident assertions or they make statements about the the law and in fact they may be true. They may be accurate. They may be doctrinally solid statements. But they're used unlawfully. They're used for the wrong reasons. What are those reasons? Well, you could read through the rest of 1 Timothy, but I'll just take you to the summary. In chapter 6, verse 3, Paul says it a number of times. He summarizes it again here. He speaks about anyone who teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Who, Paul says, is puffed up. Same word that you find over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing, but he has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. In other words, he says this is what their purpose is. This is the way that they are using the law. He talks about them using it unlawfully in chapter 1. By the time you get to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, you understand what he's talking about. These are people who are not, in fact, using God's word to either generate within their own heart or in the hearts of others the kind of love and sincere faith and gentleness and patience and kindness that is supposed to be generated. But they're doing it to generate dissensions and quarrels and fights. That is to say, they are always trying to set themselves up over against others. They're always trying to belittle others. They're always trying to bring attention to what they know and what other people don't know. They're always trying to bring attention to the exclusivity of their own knowledge, their own position, their own doctrine, or whatever it might be. There is no gentleness. There is no grace, there is no love in what they're doing. They've missed the point. They're using the law unlawfully. People do it all the time. They take doctrines that might be sound doctrines. They take truths that might be sound truths. They hear something taught somewhere else and they regurgitate it over and over again because it gathers what? Attention. Sets them on a pedestal. It gives them some name and exalts them above everybody else. This is their use of knowledge. You could look at another place with me. Over in uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaks about this again. A different group, a different kind of teaching, but the same purpose. He speaks in verse 16 about people, (coughs) he says, who pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, things which are a shadow of that which is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. 
insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in details about visions puffed up without reason because of their sensuous minds. Here they are once again puffed up. Or some version says, taking their stand. They're taking their stand. They're doing it, first of all, by judging, that is by condemning others. They're, they're, they're exalting themselves by putting other people down. Secondly, he says they are defrauding you. That is to say, they're constantly trying to rip away from you the value of Christ your rest, your security, your peace in Christ. And then in verse 18, they're taking their stand, they're exalting themselves in their legalistic teachings here, their mystical, angelic worship, their purported visions. They are inflated without cause in their fleshly minds. This is the end goal of all their teaching. It is to inflate themselves. It's to build up, but it's not to build up others. This is what you have to recognize. These people make an appearance. In fact, Paul says uh, further down in Colossians 2, 23, he says these matters have to be sure, Colossians 2, 23, uh, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. That is to say, these people will draw attention to the fact that they've made some sacrifice, that somehow they've dedicated themselves, they've shown a higher commitment or whatever it is. They'll draw attention to this. They will have the appearance of wisdom. They'll have some following sometimes. They'll have some pedestal, some accolade, some position some appearance of knowledge and of wisdom. And Paul says it'll be useless. It'll be useless. It's a sad thing that people don't understand. But there's a difference. There is a pretense. It comes with so many when it comes to their position of knowledge. This is what Jesus, of course, re- repeatedly confronted the Pharisees over He confronted them, for example, in Matthew 23, he says, because they do everything they do. He mentions them sitting on the seat of Moses and teaching his law. But he says, beware of them because they do everything they do in order to be seen by men. The end goal. These are the diatrophies that are in nearly every church. Diatrophies who John says in 3 John 9, loves to be First. He loves to be first. His goal isn't the salvation, much less the sanctification of those people around him. His goal is his own preeminence. To constantly tell you what he knows and what other people don't know. To constantly tell you how he's exalted and other people aren't. This is the aim of his instruction. And its end Quarrels, and arguments, and fights, and dissensions. Now don't take all that to mean that somehow confidence, conviction, firmness in your faith is bad. Paul, who says all these things we've looked at, will repeatedly urge us to think deeply, carefully, and confidently about the truth. He tells Titus, 
For example, in Titus 3a, he uses the exact same Greek word there that speaks about the confident assertions that they make in 1 Timothy. But he tells us that you and I need to speak confidently concerning the sound truths of doctrine. So it's not, it's not as if Paul is opposed to confidence and it's not as if he's opposed to conviction or holding firmly to some beliefs. But what he's opposed to is that which is the misuse of knowledge and doctrine, or we might even say false knowledge. That is to say, people form an understanding of a doctrine that doesn't go any deeper than just the surface level. And it doesn't impact their heart and life. That's sort of the second point, I guess, back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, second warning that Paul gives to them there is not only the pretense, but the illusion of knowledge. He warns them about the illusion of knowledge. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. Somebody once said that the progress in truth and progress in knowledge is a movement from unconscious ignorance to conscience ignorance, right? I mean, this is, this is really true when it comes to our understanding of God and of His gospel and of His grace. We progress by going down, the Scripture would tell us. We progress by becoming... More poor in spirit. This is Christ's own teaching, right? His great sermon on the mount, the very opening words. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is to say that as you progress in your faith, what you see is not a more exalted platform for yourself. What you see is a deeper and deeper poverty in your own life and in your own heart. You have the attitude of John the Baptist who says, he must increase and I must decrease, right? This is progress in the faith. It's what Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let, the one, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. Paul's basically repeating that here in chapter 8. If you think you know something, then you don't know. You have not had the correct impact from the kind of doctrine that you claim to understand. It has not had its full effect on you. It ought to humble you. It ought to pulverize you. It ought to generate within you a kind of humility and grace and patience and compassion. And this is eventually where the Apostle Paul will go In 1 Corinthians 13, after he says everything he has to say about uh, understanding issues like uh, food offered to idols, when he he goes all the way through talking about things like compensating their their pastor and things like preaching the the gospel to all, and he goes on and and, and talks about uh, the role of men and women in the church, and he talks about uh, the Lord's table and and the spiritual gifts, all those things, and you come to chapter 13, 
And this is what he will eventually say. What? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. And this will be the culminating message that he has about love is that if you understand anything that you claim to understand, it ought to be producing you the exact opposite of arrogance and boasting and impatience and unkindness. If you know anything, you ought to know that you're nothing. That's what he's saying. See, people have an illusion of knowledge because they can, they can talk about all kinds of doctrines and they can summarize all kinds of covenants and they can tell all kinds of stories and they can wow people and sway people and people flock to them to, to find answers. But it's not producing in them what it's supposed to produce. It's not emptying them of themselves. I know I've shared it before, but it's a memorable moment in my life when we were in seminary. We, all, we went to visit someone up in the Bay Area and went to this very affluent, ritzy area. And everyone on the outside, by all appearances, would have their act together. We went into the church. We went to Sunday school that morning with our friends. And um, I was amazed as Sunday school started and they had this trivia game. Some guy stood up and just calling out all these obscure facts and people and events in the Bible. I had no idea, uh, not only where they were, but sometimes that they even existed. And I felt a little ashamed. Here I was, a seminary student, and was really being trumped by so many of these things. Honestly, I don't even know that today I wouldn't even know some of those things. But I'm just kind of taking all this in, and, and the people were just responding with so much Bible knowledge. But the, the other overriding impression for my wife and I from that weekend was the sad reality of the animosity and discord and lack of love that was so dominant, whether it be in that church or on that seminary campus or even in some of the people that we hung out with. I mean, we come from a place, a church, where we just loved and it's just full of love and a seminary where there's just so much bonds of unity and love and there was so much richness in the doctrines and stuff that we were taught and we went and we saw a picture of people who were filled with knowledge but didn't understand it wasn't producing whatever it was supposed to produce they probably had some pretense they probably had some illusion of knowledge but it wasn't real knowledge Paul's saying look in you, when you do come to know the way you'll know is that you'll be nothing. You'll be nothing. This is what Paul says eventually in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I have wisdom to understand all mysteries, and though I have all knowledge, but do not have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. So one of the signs of a person who has true knowledge will be the fact that their knowledge is impacting them for patience and kindness and grace and humility. They will be like the, the guy who was at the back of the synagogue, right? Beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
Not like the publican who's always saying, well, you know, I don't, I'm not like those other people. And I'm not like those other people. I thank you, God, that I do all this and I do all that. Now, one of the signs of the person who has true knowledge will be that they're regularly drawing attention to their need for mercy. They're regularly drawing attention to their weaknesses. That naturally takes us to the third warning, third reminder, I guess you'd say, of knowledge that Paul gives us in this chapter. Not just the pretension and the illusion, but really the intention. Really what it was intended, what knowledge ought to do. And this is what he says in verse 3. If anyone loves God, he will be known by God. Sort of brings us full circle. He mentioned love in verse 1. Now he comes back and mentions it again as really the, the product of what knowledge should be producing. It is the real intent. It ought to be producing love within us. In fact, it's interesting to do a little background study on this verse. It is, it is one of those verses which uh, in recent, in the last hundred years, they have uh, uncovered uh, manuscripts. And one of the manuscripts that they uncovered, one of the most well-known is just simply called P46, Papyrus 46. One of the, I think, three oldest manuscripts that we have dates from the middle of the second century, so roughly within a hundred years of when Paul actually wrote this. And it contains a number of Paul's writings, particularly uh, 1 Corinthians and particularly the verses that we're looking at. And it's interesting if you just look at P46 and compare it to other manuscripts, it's interesting what it has and what it doesn't have. Because, of course, we read here what Paul says, if anyone loves God, he's known by God. But P46 actually doesn't have those final words. It just simply says, if anyone loves, he will be known. If you ask me, I think that certainly is more in keeping with the context. And given the fact that the, 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 the manuscript itself is one of the oldest that we have, it probably is more a reflection of what Paul originally wrote. He's not really talking about loving God so much as he's talking about loving others, building up others. He says, look, knowledge puffs up, but love does what? It edifies. It edifies. And he will go on down as we get into chapter 8, talking about making sure, for example, that we do not defile or, I'm sorry, cause our brothers to stumble, verse 9, take care that the right of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He'll talk about somehow that you don't destroy, verse 11, that brother for whom Christ died. This is all about loving your brother. And while doctrine and while knowledge certainly produces a love for God, it ought to be producing a love for others. And I think what Paul's really getting at here is that that will be the evidence. That will be the way that you're known. You will have love. And that's how you will be recognized as someone who is not just a believer, someone who's mature. This is the intent of knowledge. One of the chief evidences of your spiritual maturity, one of the chief evidences that you understand the gospel, you understand salvation, you understand grace, will be that it produces grace within you. 
1 John 4.16, we've come to know and have believed the love with which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's the final verse on a little section of verses that are all sort of woven together with that word abide. And he says it a, a number of times, if not in every verse, from verse 12 all the way through verse 16 of 1 John 4. And he really, really, what he's really talking about is that this love is the evidence that God abides in you. In fact, he opens up at the very beginning in 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. He's saying, you know what? No one can visibly see God, but we can see his imprint. We can see his fingerprints, if you will, all over you. If you abide in love, this will be the evidence. This is how we'll know that he's within you. And I think Paul would say with equal voice here, this is how we know if all the doctrine that you claim to have, if all the knowledge you claim to have is impacting you. This is how we'll know if you really understand what you claim to understand. Are you just accumulating facts? Are you just accumulating knowledge? Are you just cataloging doctrines? Are you just regurgitating what has been spilled out to you? Or are you really comprehending what God's Word says? Is it generating the kind of love, the kind of compassion, the kind of grace that it ought to be? Let me end with one picture in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is the sort of contrast, you might say, to those people who would misuse the law and sort of exalt themselves and be all about taking their stand on their doctrine and their knowledge and all these other things. This is what Paul says a true servant of God would look like. The Lord's servant, verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patient, or patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You want to know how you're going to really recognize spiritual maturity? You want to know the kind of person that you ought to be placing yourself under. You ought to be molding your life after. You ought to be, you ought to be soaking up what they say. You want to know that kind of person? This is what Paul says they're going to look like. They're going to be kind. He says they're not going to be quarrelsome. They're going to be patient. And they're going to be gentle. That's what's going to mark them. Now they're going to be able to teach. That is to say they're not all gushy kindness. There is some emphasis on doctrine because this is what produces all of these qualities. But this will be the kind of person Paul says you and I need to be. This will be the theme that will run throughout the next five chapters for us. Six chapters as we meditate all the things that Paul has to say to us. This is the foundation. Everything he has to say, whether it's the principles that guide us in knowing God's will in the gray matters, 
whether it's doctrines of roles of men and women in the church, whether it's spiritual gifts and the Lord's table, all those things. This is really what Paul is aiming at. This is what all doctrine aims at. What it produces. And this is how you'll know spiritual maturity. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful and thankful for your grace and your gospel, which instructs us and guides us, fills us each day with so much light and so much love. We say indeed the Holy Spirit has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. Lord, we pray then that it would permeate our whole lives and everything that we do. May you make us those who give evidence of your divine imprint, the invisible character and nature of you, may it be visible in all that we do. And guard us, Lord, from knowledge, which is mere pretense, which is illusionary. Guard us from those things and give us true aim and direction that you demand. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Pray these things in Christ's name.